know what they're talking about so that we can be ready to give a defense. And so uh, I'm going to touch on this just briefly today. If you did not pick up a copy of this, would you please raise your hand so that Larry can bring you one. We have one up here on the front, and Cindy's on this side over here as well. And so there's a few up here on the front that do not have a copy uh, of this here today, a few over here on the left side that do not have a copy. Keep your hand up until a copy gets to you. And let me check the top. Anybody on the top needs a copy? You are good up there. And so like I say, I'm not going to be exhaustively looking at that today. We will be touching on it. And there's a few reasons why I think we need to be touching on this today. And one of those reasons is it has created some stir uh, on social media when it comes to members of the church. Now, uh, let me just be clear. Um, the platform, and I, I, I say this with, with as much love and as much grace as I possibly can, but the platform for brothers and sisters to dialogue should be the church, not social media. When it comes to agreements and disagreements with what theology says or what life is about according to Scripture, we should be coming one to another in those dialogues with each other and not staking the positions uh, contrary to one another on social media. Uh, Paul says, can't you even judge amongst yourselves? And, and so we need to be able to do that as brothers and sisters in Christ uh, with love and affirmation being the uh, concentric circle that brings us together so that we are able to stand together when it comes to the differences we might even have in theological frameworks. But what we're going to be talking about today it is the point of the theological framework. Now, in our recent discussions, uh, I've been pointing you to your call of ministry, to living out what God has called you to in the world that you live in. And I, I, I coined it this way. I'm not the first one or the original coiner of this terminology, but have you answered your Macedonian call? A and the whole point of that question was to say God's got a direction for you. He has a call for you, and, and that call for you is not necessarily easy. It, it can be conflated with difficulties and problems along the way, but does that mean you just give up and say, God, that's too hard for me? I can't face uh, the call that you have for me because of the problems that are around me? Listen, Jesus said in this world you will have problems. You will have troubles. And in this world, that being a promise, we have to know that nothing catches God by surprise when it touches our life. So turn to Acts 17. I want to remind you uh, of where Paul found himself, having answered the Macedonian call real quickly. And, and I won't spend a lot of time on this today, but I want to remind you of that beginning in verse number 5 of Acts chapter 17. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the market place and gathering a mob set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. <coughs> but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, <coughs> these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them and 
But these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Just remind you of what's going on real quick. Paul wanted to go into Asia, was denied. God said not going there. Paul ends up going into Macedonia, having seen the Macedonian call in a vision. He gets to Macedonia. He's in Thessalonica. He is in God's will. He is following God's personal will for himself, and things are not going according to the way that maybe we would want them to go. He's having troubles, and he's having difficulties, but yet at the same time, we know that there was spiritual fruit there for the fact that it said, the Jews who were not persuaded. That means some were persuaded. That means some believed. That means some trusted in what Paul was teaching and what Paul was preaching. It says they became envious. Why did they become envious? Because if Paul is right and what he's teaching is true, that makes me have to understand that it challenges and changes my way of life. And if it challenges and changes my way of life, and I'm happy with my way of life, I don't want that. And that's what these Jews were coming to. They, they recognized the truth of what Paul was speaking as far as what the ramifications would be, but they didn't want to lose power. They didn't want to lose influence. Uh, they didn't want to lose their positions that they had in life. And therefore, it's it challenging uh, who they are and what they are made them become envious, made them become angry at what Paul was teaching. And so earlier from Acts 17, a few weeks ago, I said finding God's personal call and direction begins with being faithful to what God has already said. Now that rubber's going to meet the road today. Being faithful to what God has already said mean, means that when you're confronted in this life with something that is against the grain of what God has already said, what do you do? Do you capitulate and go with what's being presented to you? Or do you say, no, I know God's way is true. And I'm going to stick with him. And that's where the rubber meets the road because capitulation means you have to sign that form that your business gives out that says you're not going to participate in any discriminatory activities as so regulated by intersectionality and critical race theory, and the LBGTQAYZ agenda. You're signing it and saying, even though I love these people, and even though I would serve any of these people because they're created in the image of God, you're having to then say, you know what? I will cave to the requirements that are set forward in this paperwork because that's simply what they told me to do. There's the rubber meeting the road in our decisions when it comes to following after Christ because there is fruit <coughs> within the call of God. We see that with Paul, but there's also fruit that comes from the out outside of the call of God. You're familiar with the wheat and the tares, right? We spoke a little about that last week. You got one kind of fruit, one kind of produce that's called wheat. That's God's fruit. 
fruitfulness from the word of God being sown, you've got another produce, another fruit called tares. That's not God's fruit. That's fruit from the world that was sown in there by an enemy of God, by Satan himself. And so those are poison fruit, the wheat and the tares. So you just read Acts 17. There's fruit that came from Paul's call. He's following his personal call to the ministry. We've been using that as a mirror to hold up to ourselves to say, are we following God's personal call to the ministry he's called each one of us individually to? But I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 2. <clears throat> in Colossians chapter 2, there's something going on in, in, in this church in Colossae. It's called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is basically some reaching for a world philosophy and saying we have this knowledge, we have this understanding, we have this wisdom that we've gained just simply because we're very wise people. Not on any other basis or substantiation other than that, just some people bolstering themselves that they know better than everybody else. And in this, they were applying it to spiritual matters. Uh, but isn't that what's going on in the world today where the educational foothold and stronghold in this country has come up and said, philosophically, we know what's going on with people and we can prescribe the remedies. Isn't that the same thing? And the whole rhetoric, follow the science, is actually a push of Gnosticism in view of saying, if you don't know what we know, then you're just not as smart as we are and you need to get educated. And, and that's some of the framework that's going on in Colossae. This Gnosticism has gripped and people are, are following this, this worldly philosophy in their ideas of uh, the faith. And so in Colossians chapter 2, look at verse 1. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding. Look at what Paul is pointing to. He says there is a full assurance that you can have. And that full assurance is of understanding. It's not of ignorance. It's not of wondering. It is a certainty that, that, that when you are knit together in love and you have Christ in your heart, that there is a richness that God gives you in a full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. They sound like they know what they're talking about. That's persuasive words. They come and they, they say, we put a lot of study and research into the theories that we're postulating in front of you. We, we've done a lot of, uh, of research into the classes and genders and welfares of people that are in this world. We've done a, a lot of background looking into what they were raised in and the conditions that they come through. And, and we can therefore come before you and say that this theory of intersectionality, this theory... Uh, of critical race theory is something that we can stand behind because we know what we're talking about. Be careful of the deceptions that Satan will create. You continue looking at what Paul says. He says, 
Now this I say to you, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Let's pause for just a second on verse 6. How did you receive Christ? That's what he's bringing their mind and their attention back to. How did you receive Christ? I don't know about your testimony. I've heard some of them, but I can recount mine. I was going my own way, doing my own thing. I was pursuing pleasure. I was pursuing everything that I thought would satisfy. And I realized, according to the preaching of the gospel, that that would be empty one day, that I would be broken, and I would suffer loss for all eternity because of that. And I came to the point to said, I don't want that. What I want is I want what God has for me. And I received it that day that I trusted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. But I understood what it meant that he was my Lord. That means he's in charge. And I began walking in that way, saying, God, what is it you want me to do? Jesus, how do you want to change me? And he didn't do it instantaneously in every area of my life. But oh, the progress that God has made has been a testimony that he does give you the wisdom that's from above. He does change you from the inside out. And that's what Paul's bringing them back to. You are going your own way, doing your own thing, headed for a destiny of destruction. And God saved you. And listen, you didn't have to know all the answers to be saved. You didn't have to know all the theoretical frameworks. You didn't have to know all the philosophical treaties. You, you didn't have to know all the evangelical terminologies. All you had to know was that God loved you so much, he sent his son to die on the cross for you, and that cross paid the penalty for your sin debt in front of a holy and just God. That's all you had to know. And when you understood that, you got saved, not by anything you did, but by all that God had already accomplished. So he brings them that in verse 6. And he goes on to say this, after that salvation encounter that he reminded them of in verse 6 and verse 7, he says, rooted and built up in him. You don't stop being in Christ. You're still in him. You're in him from the moment of salvation. And, and you don't just stand upon the rock of your salvation and just... Go, let the tides flow around you, you're actually doing something. You're rooted and you're being built up in him. You're growing from Christ, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, he gives another warning. Beware, lest anyone cheat you. You know what happens when we settle for the philosophies of this world, the mechanics of this society, when we settle for less than what God has for us in his wisdom and his knowledge, we get cheated. We get robbed. We exchange the glory of God for things that were made by man's hands. And that's the cheating that Paul wants them not to be a, a part of. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of this world, and not according to Christ. Do you want to live according to the world or according to Christ? That's the point he's bringing them to. 
for in him, oh, and in him alone, not in him plus anything, but in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete. Now, we're going to be touching on this in just a second. Why are people chasing these philosophies? And why are they bringing them to bear on culture and society? And we're going to look at that question in just a second, the why. But there's a big clue to it found here in what Paul says. He says, you are complete. Why are people chasing these philosophies? They're empty. They're searching for significance. They want to be somebody. They want power. They want position. They want prestige. And if we can just attain that in the world we live in, then we're somebody. Paul says, you don't need that. You're already complete. There's nothing more that can be added to you to make you more substantial in the history of eternity than the person of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ has been added unto you by the drawing of the Holy Spirit in your life, by the receiving of the grace of God, when you are in Jesus and He is in you, there is no greater man or woman that's ever existed in the eternity of history. You are it. You say, but aren't I supposed to grow? Yeah. But your growth doesn't make you any more salvational. You're already saved. And you're already fulfilled. Matter of fact, your growth doesn't even make you any more right with God. That righteousness was accomplished on the cross. In him dwells the full head of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head over all principality and power. I didn't mean to preach that long on that verse, but oh, it's good. That's a good verse. So where does intersectionality and critical race theory come from? I've already answered that in some means. It comes from the world. It comes from being rooted in the world. You're rooted in Christ, according to Colossians chapter 2. But people that aren't in Christ, they're rooted in the world, and that's what they grow from, and that's what they gain from. And the people that are in the world, that are rooted in the world, what they see is they see that there's a problem. There's a problem. And that problem is there are some people that have and some people that have not. In their mind, that's a problem. They see there's a problem that there's some people that are ostracized from society and, and they really think that, you know what, society should be about inclusiveness of everybody. That was the buzzword when I went through educational studies in the 90s in college. Inclusivism. Do you think this is new? It's been going on for a long time. There's racism that exists. Oh, and we're going to talk about that social construct in just a minute. And what I mean by social construct is racism is an idea created by man, for man, from man. But there's a problem where certain people of certain colors get deprived of things from other people of other colors. That's how, where they stake it on. and what they're, they're looking, they're saying, now let me ask you this, just be honest. Is there such thing as discrimination? Yeah, don't be afraid to answer, there is. I grew up in Georgia. 
That would be part of the intersectionality of my life according to this paradigm that they've created. And having been grown up in that place, there's certain experiences I would have been through. And did I hear words that we shouldn't appropriate to anybody? I sure did. Did I use words? Yeah. But you ask that to every human being that's ever breathed, and they better answer yes also, or else they're a liar. You see, they recognize there is a problem with humanity. And that problem creates difficult situations and circumstances and that there's racism that really does happen according to their construct. And in recognizing that there's a problem, they come to a point and they say, well, now let's address the problem. And that's what they're trying to do. I, I, I firmly believe they think, rooted in this world, growing from the things of this world, that they're trying to address a problem of this world. But the problem is, everything they're doing starts with man and ends with man. It's an egocentric, man-centric idea. And we call that humanism. And humanism is all about man. And what is the chief end of man and humanism? Man. And therefore, it starts with man, ends with man, and it's all about man. So let's look real quickly. I gave you a hint of intersectionality just a minute ago. Intersectionality is the interconnected nature of social categorizations such as race, class, and gender regarded as creating and overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination and disadvantage based upon your history. So they draw these circles, race, gender, disability, gender identification. And where all these circles overlap in that little center, if your life overlaps the most with the other circles that are out there, that's where intersectionality comes from. If your life overlaps the most with all these other circles that are out there, then you're most prone to discrimination you're most prone to being disadvantaged. So that's what intersectionality is. Again, that's the simple elementary definition I want to give today. If I feel God leading, I'll address this further next week. But you need to be aware of this philosophy. And I'll tell you why at the end. Some of you may already see it. The other one is critical race theory. Critical race theory is a theoretical framework in the social sciences. You see that word science, which means it must be true, right? It's a theoretical framework in the social sciences that examines society and culture as they relate to these categorizations of race and law and power and gender and all of those things. I'm glad they used the word theoretical. Because honestly, that's all they are. They're theories. Based upon philosophical premises. And all that these two things, intersectionality and critical race theory, are concerned about, they're concerned about there's a problem, we have to find an answer to the problem, but really they're concerned about at the end of the day, a reach for power. That's really what it is. It's a reach for power that you have the oppressed 
and you have the oppressors. And the oppressors have kept the oppressed oppressed so that the oppressors have the power. And if the oppressors have the power, they're going to keep the oppressed oppressed and they're going to keep the power. So we've got to level the playing field. And how do we do that? We find out the commonalities of the oppressed and we begin to give them tools and mechanisms to reach over to the oppressor side and become unoppressed and become powerful. And so seeing that, that's where all this is coming from. In their worldview. In, in their understanding of what they hold to and what they believe. But here's the problem. Isn't that exactly what Marxism has done? And what happens to those that have been told they're disadvantaged their whole life when all of a sudden they have the power? You can go and see a lot of graves that resulted from that. It's a Marxist ideology. And it's a world view. Where does it come from? It comes from people's desire for significance and power and influence. They, they, they say it's to level the playing field, to help stop, stamp out discrimination, to help create racial tolerance. But it really is a desire of man for significance, power, and influence. And, and it's to grab hold of that so that when the end of the day is done and my life is spent, I can look back on my deathbed and say, I lived for a purpose. But do you know what happens to the purposes that we live for when they're in this world? They erode with the sand. They don't last for eternity. They're washed away with the new rainfall that comes after we've been put in the ground. The only way that one can have significance in this world is to gain power and wield influence according to their mantra. And my friend, that is poison fruit when life is all about me. That's poison fruit because you live for self and you die for self and at the end of the day you're in hell for all eternity. And that's what's going on in the world today. A search for significance, seeking to grab for power in order to be important from a me-first attitude. That's what it's all about. As I've been challenging you all to seek and find God's personal call for your lives based on Paul's ongoing discoveries in his life, in no way, ever, is that so you can have your best day ever. In no way is seeking the personal call that God has for your life a strategy to gain power, a strategy to gain influence, a strategy to insulate and isolate yourself from damage or hurt. In no way is seeking God's call for your life a me-first attitude. As a matter of fact, if you're really seeking God's call for your life, the Bible is real clear. It's a strategy to die. To die to self and live for others. To not be prideful, but to be humble. Matter of fact, turn to Matthew chapter 5. 
Some of you are asking, when are we going to get to these papers today? Those are secondary. If we get there, we get there. But if we don't, well, there's another day if the Lord doesn't call us home. Here in Matthew chapter 5, here's the strategy that you have in seeking God's will and way for your life. Begin in verse 1, and see in the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he, had seated his, when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Here, here's your strategy of seeking the will of God in your life. You ready? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for acclaim in this world. That's not what it says. For righteousness. For they shall be filled. The emptiness of this world is what's driven them to these theoretical philosophies. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are, what's that word, church? Jesus didn't really mean that, right? He, he wouldn't call me to gain f fullness, which is what he said earlier that we are. He wouldn't call me to gain mercy myself, which is what earlier he said we'd gain. He wouldn't call me to the fullness of the life of Christ and bring persecution at the same time. That would just not be not be what I'd want. Aha. There's the problem. We've made Christianity so much about what I want. Which is exactly what intersectionality and critical race theory is about. People wanting power. People wanting fulfillment because they need significance and they haven't found it. Listen, if you're in Christ and you're complete and you're still struggling with significance, then you better check your roots. Make sure that you're rooted in Him and grounded in Him because if you're rooted in Him and grounded in Him, your significance will be found in Him. It's not going to be found in that guy you find. It's not going to be found in that girl you find. It's not going to be found in those children you have. It's not going to be found in that job that opens up to you. Your significance is going to be in Christ and Christ alone no matter what your home looks like, no matter what your business looks like, no matter what your hobbies look like. Your fulfillment will be in Christ if you're rooted and grounded in Him. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in government. 
I say these words because I want you to see how asinine we are at times. Where we chase man's applause and we postulate our ideas so that others will be turned to them yet to find that they're very content in their own ways of destruction. And then we harbor bitterness because they didn't see things my way. Jesus is very clear. They're not going to. You will actually be persecuted for righteousness' sake. And Jesus says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. There's a payday someday, and it ain't here for you yet. Don't think it's your earthly bank account with social statuses and numbers of dollars that creates your significance. Your significance is right there. Right there in the presence of God in heaven for all eternity. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, your calling is that strategy, that strategy to die. In Luke chapter 17, you don't have to turn there. I'm just quoting one verse. Verse 32 says, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. What did Lot's wife do? She looked back for the glory of the city she was running from rather than to the glory of the call God had given her. Turn to Matthew chapter 10. You are in Matthew chapter 5, just a couple more pages to the right, and you'll find your way to Matthew chapter 10. Look at verses 34 through 39. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. What do you do with a sword? Well, here's the point. The sword's not in your hand, believer. Okay? Before we go any further in the reading of this, I just want to get that picture in your mind. The sword is not in your hand. Okay? Continue reading. For I have come to set a man against a father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So you can picture there's this against understanding that's going on, that there's, there's something happening where one's not for the other, they're against. And the swords come into the picture. Whose hand is the sword in? Nope. Keep reading. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. You're going to see the picture of who has the sword right here. Does the one who has the sword lose his life or defend his life? Verse 
He who finds his life will lose it. Is that the Christian? Think with me. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. You don't lose your life if you're the one wielding the sword. You defend your life. But oh, if it's the father against son and mother against daughter, one of those is defending their life and the other is just carrying their cross. It's the world that brings the sword against the believer. I showed you the characteristics of Paul's call so that hopefully it would be a mirror for us to see that God's called each one of us to something similar in the world that we live in, to die to ourselves and to live for him, uh, that our life would be centered on the foundation of the gospel and, and we would not turn away from that foundation of the gospel, that all worldly significance and all earthly power and all societal influences that we might attain by our own doing if we would only realize that it would be eroded away with every wind of man's new doctrine hereafter then we would stop building monuments to ourselves and start living for the glory of God and God alone and if that becomes the venue of the world that we live in then no matter what's going on around us we're able to say no that is a false ideology that is a false precept that is a false theoretical framework that is a false philosophical value but at the same time it would not threaten us for who we are because we would realize that we're already all complete in Christ Jesus and nothing 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 is going to change that and if we realize that's where we are and who we are then we don't become bitter when these things come around us we actually become better for it because it helps us synthesize what we actually hold true it helps to actually use a metaphorical term helps us to remove the wheat and the chaff from our own mind I'm not talking salvifically I'm talking what's been planted there and when that happens we get to become that fruit for God himself just turn if you will to Colossians one more time. And you got that sheet of paper in your hand, right? You hold on to that. What I want you to do with that is I want you to look at it this week. And I want you to discover what is actually written there in the Southern Baptist Convention 2019 meeting for resolution number nine, which is what that is that you're holding. I want you to actually read. A lot of people have taken positions on this, and they haven't even read it. They're parroting what other people have said. I can tell you my position. It's not going to change yours. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. But my position is it's really just unnecessary. That's where I've come down to it once I've read it. So let's close with this.
Colossians chapter 2. Finish this, read this, and listen to what the Spirit of God would say to you. For I want you to know <coughs> what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. We read it earlier, but I want you to listen. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches and full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I'm with you in the Spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of this world, and not according to Christ. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him, who is the head of all principality and power. What can touch you that doesn't pass through the hands of God first? Nothing. Father, we thank you for the love that you've given us, for the fact that that changes who we are. We are that new creation. We are that spiritual house. We are strangers and pilgrims in a strange land. And Father, when we realize the richness and fullness that you've already given us, <clears throat> then Father, we realize that everything that comes against us is actually not coming against us. It's coming against you. And we're able, Father, to count it a joy and to keep on moving in the direction that you are showing us for our personal life and our personal ministry as well as our walk together. <clears throat> and so, God, I pray that our confidence would be in you, but I pray more so than confidence that we would know our significance is in you and that we would not pander to the world nor chase the things of the world to try to discover significance because, God, we would realize you've already given it. And, Father, it's through your love that we even get to realize that. So, therefore, we thank you. In the name of Jesus, and all God's people said,